Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And Brian, what have you done? I'm not taking the blame for this one. Like, the Golos deck is so obvious and so powerful. At some point, someone was going to make this happen. I just don't, I don't deserve the blame here. Let me off the hook. I maybe, like, deserve some of the blame for popularizing Esper. And do you remember when people were upset about Esper and they're like, oh, this deck's so good and it's ruining the format and I don't want to have to play against this? Well, don't worry about it because it looks like a joke in the face of Golos. So that deck is long gone at this point. Yeah, that deck's unplayable. Yep. But regardless, it's kind of what we do here, right? It's like the the format exists the way it does currently, and we're going to do our best to figure out how to thrive in the format as it exists. There is no sense just, you know, wishing that things were different or whatever, because it, it just is what it is. And there are ways to go about this, you know, like not everyone who played Golos went undefeated or whatever. Uh, the deck is very much beatable, and obviously it is frustrating to play against and, and all that stuff. Maybe mirrors aren't the most delightful thing ever. We are just going to do our normal thing and provide y'all with the best content that we possibly can. And whether you want to play Golos, you want to beat it, we got the answers. Yeah, I think beat them or join them is basically the way it goes right now. You know what you're focused on. And people complain when there's not really a focal point for the format. So maybe this isn't the most delightful focal point for the format. And I do understand the frustration of having to play against Field of the Dead repeatedly. But like you said, this is the world we have. We're going to figure out the answers. And maybe the answer is just play this deck. That's kind of what we're thinking right now. Although that's not to say we don't both have ideas that we think are promising. I have some things I'm exploring, but they're, they're in a rough state right now. And I'm not really willing to say, okay, this is the deck that can move the format forward. So I think that leaves us at looking at the format as it stands now and understanding Golos to the best of our abilities. Right. And if I had a tournament this weekend, I would absolutely be playing Golos. And I got home from SCG Philly and uh, played through the majority of Diamond on Arena with Golos. And, you know, the, the deck is still good, still great. And I happen to actually enjoy casting ramp spells and activating Golos spinning that wheel. I enjoy playing the deck too. I think it requires a lot of thought and a lot of proper sequencing. And while the late game, especially in the mirror, can get very bogged down, and I understand why someone wouldn't want to play against it, I think as a deck to gain mastery of, this is a really, really good candidate because not only does it have a lot of game planning and a lot of edge you can get in the games themselves, but in deck building, I think this deck has a lot of edges it can exploit. And I also think it has a lot of potential evolutions, regardless of whether we find something that quote unquote beats Golos. I don't think that this deck is going to go anywhere. I think there will be some form of it present in the metagame throughout. So why not buy in now and figure out how you're supposed to alter your sideboard or how you're supposed to alter your main deck to deal with the eventual changes that the format is going to undergo. Right. I mean, even going back as far as last season, the, the deck basically started as a scapeshift deck, right? And then people right. were like, oh, we could just add Golos to this and have like this secondary plan. And then it was like, wait, this is just way better than the scapeshift deck. And then Kenji Sumura did well in the arena WMCQ thing with adding Nexus of Fate to the Golos deck eventually. And 
that entire deck basically just ported over, you know, and now you don't have Nexus for like the unbeatable end game, but people are already looking for ways to, you know, like I have eight mana and a field of the dead. Like how do I close this game as quickly as possible? Yeah. I climbed to top 30 mythic last season and I really only played two decks. It was Golos and Kethis and Kethis did the majority of the climb, but Golos was around for the early stages and it was extremely powerful even in the last format. And not a lot of pieces missing. Like Nexus of Fate is one you mentioned. It's one that I was playing. But the numbers of Nexus of Fate kept decreasing as the format went on. And it doesn't surprise me at all. This deck has found a way to exist post-rotation. The early versions of Golos post-rotation were really bad. I was really underwhelmed. But now things have come together. And it's very clear this deck is, I mean, tier zero, right? This is this is it the is. focal point of the format. Yeah, absolutely. And... I've had a lot of fun experimenting with different builds and even, again, last season, Kenji's list was band-based and then it was like, okay, well, there are a bunch of mirrors, like maybe we should try Sultai and stuff like that. And you're seeing a, a lot of that happen right now also. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll just skip around in our outline a little bit. There's there's band, there's Sultai as played by Zach Allen with... I don't know, Risen Reef, Yurik, uh, some Casualties of War, Assassin's Trophy, things like that, trying to get uh, an edge in the actual mirror. And then there are the Fires versions as played by Jeremy Bertarioni. Mm -hmm. that's, that? that's how I've been pronouncing it. Jeremy, okay. if I've been pronouncing your name wrong this whole time, please find me at some point and tell me. But I am committed to Bertarioni at this point. Okay. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different versions and... It is really nice to be able to get to flex like your your deck building muscles and especially for a deck that has access to all five colors of mana. You can basically play any card in standard. It's just all about finding the right piece to solve the problem that's at hand, you know? Yeah. And I think there's so many approaches you can use as well. Not only like these broader versions, but also within these individual decks. And your deck choices matter a lot when you have a deck that's very redundant, sees a lot of its deck every game, and also has some access to sideboard in game one if it wants to. So all of that stuff matters and really amplifies how important all of your deck building decisions are. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are willing to play Golos, you want to be the enemy, I think just working on these decks in general will, it, it'll just level up your skills so much. And I highly recommend it. Right there with you. Anyway, Golos Deep Dive. Why is this deck so good? It's interesting. Usually where there's a villain very early on in a format, it's comprised of good cards. Like the most powerful things you can be doing in the set come together and present a bunch of questions that are very difficult to answer. So With, like like Simic two weeks ago. Exactly like Simic. Simic is a perfect example of this type of good deck. And it's a reason why Simic occupied tier one in our eyes when we did our tier breakdown last week. With Golos, it feels to me like we have already found the polar end of the format. Like this is as big as you can possibly get. It's as, as much inevitability as you can realistically build into a deck and I'm not sure anything is going to come and usurp that. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. It, it's certainly always within the realm of possibility that someone finds a new combo or we saw with Kethis last season. I think Kethis basically usurped the Golos plan at some point because it just contained both inevitability and this combo kill. 
maybe there will be something like that in this format. But for right now, it feels like we have found one polar end of the format. And usually that's fine because you find the polar end and then you go to the other pole and you beat that up really hard. But Field of the Dead makes it so, so hard to do that because your entire ground offense is just stymied at some point. Like every ground creature in your deck becomes irrelevant once Golo starts doing its thing. And that's a really tough deck building position to have to account for. And we haven't seen aggressive decks do so in any kind of reliable fashion thus far. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean... My article this week on Star City is basically about Embercleave and about decks that can actually utilize that card effectively. And from the Golo side of things, there was a period last week where I think the two matches I lost were both two Trample plus Death Touch in some combination. So it was like Knight of the Ebon Legion plus Embercleave or Questing Beast plus Vivian Arcbow Ranger. And that is a thing that some people are doing in order to get through these hordes of zombies. And it's it's problematic because a lot of your your game plan for stabilizing is just I hope I can block with some tutus. Right. So certainly if decks start negating that, that's a good start. But again, everything you're talking about is a creature. And these Golos decks have access to usually four, well, three to four real copies. I would actually say two to four. I've seen some people go down to two to four real copies of Wraths, but because it's often in the form of Realm Cloak Giant and the deck plays once upon a time, you get far more virtual copies of the card. And it being Realm Cloak Giant means you can get rebuys on it as well. If you combine it with a Time White, you have Realm Cloak Giant back in your hand. If you are able to use Teferi and bounce the creature version of Realm Cloak Giant, you have additional access to Wrath of God. And then there's just the fact that you're drawing a ton of cards with Growth Spiral, with Hydroid Crisis, and Golos itself, so you're reliably finding these effects. So loading up the battlefield can present some challenges. It's one of the reasons why Questing Beast has shined so much against the deck. It's not only the evasion from the 2-2, it's also the haste and being able to play around Wrath effects to some extent. Yeah, and Questing Beast and, to some extent, Skargan Hellkite, things like that, that have evasion, that are just these one-card threats and demand an answer, like, Golos doesn't really deal that well with them because a lot of their incidental interaction is stuff like Teferi, right? It's just like you you bounce the thing for a turn, but it's just going to come right back down and hit you again. Yeah, so I think these decks are finding ways to account for these problem cards at this stage. You see some people trying to do so with... Oko is a card we're starting to see see more and more play. I'm pretty low on Oko in general. We'll talk more about that later. But there are basically many moves you can make to account for these cards. And look, you could just play removal spells at some point if that's what you have to do. Things like Glass Casket may not hit Questing Beast, but it cleans up some of these other problems you mentioned. And basically, the deck is so good that it doesn't have to play removal spells at this juncture. It's just very content to go with sweepers and make some zombies, and that's enough to contain everything. But like we said, there's adaptations this deck is going to make along the way. And if it's got to be picking up a few spot removal spells here or there, some prison realm, something like that, I am confident the deck will do so. Yeah, or even just switching colors, you know? The, of course. The, Assassin's the white, Trophy. Yeah, the, the white stuff, I mean, Teferi is already getting shaved. Rome Cloak Giant is getting shaved a little bit. And if people start playing, 
decks with questing beasts that are just like, I'm going to make one big thing and kill you that way, then the sweepers lose a lot of value. And then you can just look at going to something like Saltai and just playing trophies. Yeah. I, and, you know, maybe Zach Allen a little bit ahead of the curve there, simultaneously accounting for that plan and trying to hard target the mirror. I'm not 100% on board with his build. And I don't think he was either by the end of the tournament. I think there were things he thought he could have done better. But it is a promising foundation and one that wouldn't surprise me if it becomes the default build at some point. The deck has the potential to play a bunch of different answers to various things and also has the potential to just completely alter what what itself the deck looks like in order to handle these things. Plus, it has this inevitable endgame that also just comes online very quickly, right? Like spiral into circuitous route into Golos, make a zombie or two. Like you're at what? 15 and like the doors basically already closed, you know? Yeah. And it's wild too, because Golos would take all of these game actions and have so many lands on the battlefield and would run away with the game. And you would assume this game had been going on forever. And then you think back through the turns and you're like, wait a second, this is like turn seven right now. And Golos has an army of zombies on the battlefield and is ending this game. It just feels like we've gotten to the late game so, so quickly. So that's another feather in its cap as well. And you mentioned how the deck can just go over the top of everything. And there's this problem with quaint answers where this card is theoretically good versus Golos, but eventually given enough time, the deck will scale so hard that it doesn't matter. So doing something like playing Assassin's Trophy on my Field of the Dead. Okay, that sounds good. You've taken away a Field of the Dead from me. But once Golos starts rolling and the deck is really clicking on all cylinders, you'll find as many Field of the Dead as you need. You'll play Golos, bounce Golos with Teferi, play Golos again, Krasis for X equals 12, draw a Field of the Dead naturally. Like It will come back together if you're given enough time. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the big problems is that this is one of those decks where its plan A isn't something that it leans on. It doesn't rely on it. So you have all these people doing things like Assassin's Trophy, Casualties of War, citing an unmoored ego, and they just don't really do anything. The deck still has Golos. It still has uh, Realm Cloak Giant, Beanstalk Giant, Hydroid Crisis, X equals infinity, you know? There are so many ways to actually win the game that, like, yes, Field of the Dead is good. It is easy mode, but realistically, that's not the way that you should be attacking this deck. It should just be, like, let them have Field of the Dead and find a way to kill them despite that. Yeah, I'm just off on Mordigo Ashiok at this point. Even when I'm building, like, Fae of Wishes versions of Golos, and I could just play one copy in my sideboard and get it reliably in game once. I'm still not playing on Mordigo or Ashiok at this point. I just think the game plan is too varied that if you focus on these narrow points of interaction, you'll get buried somewhere else. So you need to think about asserting your own plan while slowing them down a little bit. Your job is to provide speed bumps, and those cards just aren't really efficient speed bumps. They line up with one part of the deck, but not the other part. Yeah, on Mordigo has a lot of problems, and I think the chief one is just, what if they just play a field of the dead early? You know, it's mm-hmm. like you get rid of three of their fields, you skip your turn, and then they're still making enough zombies to hold you off and pressure you. So it, it, it itself is just not a good plan. Ashiok, I tried for mirror matches, and I just, you know, kept playing these games where my opponent would have Ashiok, and I would just beat them anyway. And yeah. 
especially Ashiok out of slow decks, right? Because like if they give you enough time, yeah, you're going to have like Circuitous Route in your hand or like you're going to just run out like a raw 3-5 Golos or whatever. But given enough time, they're just going to make zombies naturally. They're going to cast Hydroid Crisis and then they're just going to attack down your Ashiok or, you know, Deputy of Detention it or whatever. You just give them too much time. Out of the aggro decks, I've actually been reasonably happy with Ashiok just because it does slow them down a lot. If you go like one drop, two drop Ashiok before they can Circuitous Route or Golos, I I have actually liked that, especially since they're not trying to play a longer game. They're not going to give you a bunch of time to actually draw out of it and kill Mm -hmm. the Ashiok and start doing their thing. But yeah, for the most part, that card, it just doesn't do enough. And I would much rather have something like Disdainful Stroke or if you're even an aggro deck, like maybe even drill bit is better, you know? Yeah. Ashiok with the same problem it had in the last format that if you don't accompany it with aggression, it just is irrelevant at some point. And the deck has enough catch up and enough reach in it. I guess reverse reach. Is that a thing we've ever even talked about before? It has enough ways to recoup advantages despite playing from behind for the first four to five turns. And that means if Ashiok is just sitting there for, you know, turns three through four, I will overcome that. If I have to, I'll play Krasis on two, right? And that's a pressure point. And if you want to waste, waste a removal spell on that Krasis and then not have it in the late game when Golos gets online, I think you're going to get punished for that. Yeah, absolutely. So not an easy deck to attack is basically the, the thesis here. And I cannot stress enough that you cannot try and attack this deck directly, you have to play a strategy that is fundamentally good against what Golos is trying to accomplish or how they are trying to stabilize against you. That is your plan. Well, what does that look like? I mean, what's fundamentally good against what Golos is attempting to do? They have a bunch of ground creatures, a bunch of zombies. So Death Touch Trample, Trample in general, Flying, some sort of combo or like fast sort of combo kills. So uh, like Juza's fires deck, right? Where you play fires, you play some other random spell. And then on turn five, you play Cavalier of Flame, Cavalier of Gales. And you just, you know, play two threats that are huge for every turn for the rest of the game. That is a good way to beat up on Golos. They basically can't deal with that sort of like burst damage. And... You were talking about maybe building like Wilderness Reclamation, RAL, Expansion Explosion combo. And like, that's another thing where it's just like, you know, Golos can kill you on turn eight, turn nine, something like that. And if you have like any sort of defense against them, like you're playing Flame Sweep or whatever to buy yourself a turn, or maybe like countering a Golos, countering a Circuitous route, like you have so much time to eventually set up your combo and there's just nothing they can do about it. Yeah, that deck in particular is very interesting to me because there were points in the last format where it felt like on power level, this is something that we should be able to do. But there again, there were poles of the format, things like Nexus of Fate that really kept that kind of approach down. I think in this format, there's kind of a sweet spot where something like a Rel combo can sneak in and start to punish these decks like Golos while still containing the aggro decks. You mentioned Flame Sweep. The fact that it's good against aggro and these Golos decks, pretty appealing. I haven't quite gotten the 
balance right yet. I don't know exactly what I want to do is like my non-RAL expansion explosion stuff. I've tried some Oko Goose packages alongside Wicked Wolf. I've tried just like a bunch of removal, some counter magic, like you mentioned, and none of it feels quite right. So I'm going to keep exploring that as a way to potentially punish these decks because I think you're right. I think just a combo deck, something like Kethys would really punish this deck very, very hard. Yeah, let's let's be clear though. Flame Sweep is only good against Golos if you have the better endgame and you're just looking to buy time, right? Right, right. And I think to some extent Ral has that, right? It's like a one-turn yes. kill out of nowhere. So yeah, exactly. But but for any other sort of deck, it's like, yes, Golos technically kills you with a horde of zombies, but like boarding in Flame Sweep is not the way that you're actually going to win the game. You may prolong the inevitable for a turn or whatever, but that's not actually going to translate into anything. Agreed. I've seen it a bunch out of gruel lists, and I don't know that I quite get it there. It seems like you have better, like, obviously it's a tool to force damage in that instance. It seems like you could find better tools to force damage than Flame Sweep. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I, I'm mostly interested in aggressive decks, things that will actually pressure Golos, maybe disrupt them a little bit. And Ember Cleave seems like a good finisher. It's also just like generically good. You know, it's not this card that is hard targeted towards Golos or anything. And Mm -hmm. maybe it it wasn't a thing that a lot of people were playing beforehand. They didn't really have a reason to, but I mean, the the fact that it does happen to actually get through this horde of zombies or get through like green, white adventures and stuff like that. Like the, the card is very good. It is very powerful. Yeah. Explosive, explosive approach. People who have been playing gruel a lot in this format, usually based around Embercleave, they're very high on their Golos matchup. They think this is a way forward. I've played some Gruul. I hate it. I want nothing to do with it. Part of that is like playstyle preference. Part of it is I think your matchups versus a lot of other stuff are really, really bad. And it's weird where if everyone's trying to beat Golos, you'll see a lot more non-Golos decks then you probably should, given that like the best win rate comes from Golos. You would expect everyone to just play that, but we're still very early in the format. So everyone's saying, well, maybe this isn't true. Maybe I can figure out a way around this. So I'm playing against those decks a bunch with Gruul, and I'm pretty continually disappointed. So not 100% in on that deck yet. But again, I agree with you conceptually. This is a very strong way to punish Field of the Dead. Yeah, and you don't even have to be Gruul. I think they're like Knights can do it. I think okay. even Mo- Mono Red Aggro can do it. Okay. And I've been reasonably happy with both of those so far, but even even just playing like Brazen Borrower in some stuff, you know, like th- that card is very good and pressures very quickly. And if you have some way to close the game after they deal with that card, then even better. Yeah, the games I saw Simic actually win against Golos, which were pretty few and far between, quite frankly. When they did happen, though, Brazen Borrower are usually a key part of that, being able to fly and put some pressure on early, very important. Simic needs to play more counter spells. I don't know. I, I just don't think it's salvageable from like a fundamental standpoint. I have never been afraid of the Simic decks from the Golo side. And if they load up on counter spells, you stick it to Fairy and you're People are to cutting to Fairy. People well, are cutting it. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to the individual card choices as we move through this deck. Okay, fair enough. I, so Simic Flash it has to have a good Golos matchup, right? I think so. I think so. Again, though, it, what what else is it good against? And it has a Teferi problem. Like, that is a real thing the deck struggles under. And if you don't have the counterspell on that 
exact turn or you're on the draw and don't have mystical dispute or something like that, you can get completely shut out of the game by Teferi. Yes, of course. And then, you know, your plan is, you know, maybe try and attack it down with Spectral Sailor and Mm -hmm. I don't know, the 2-2 Flash Reach Wolf, whatever its name is. Wildborn Preserver. There you go. And those those plans are fine. I think you will be able to take out Teferi over the course of a few turns or whatever. Uh, maybe at that point, the damage is already done and it's too late. They've already resolved Route or Golos or whatever. But regardless, you can see how a deck like that would have a favorable Golos matchup. And I think the Simic decks need to lean into that a little bit more. That seems reasonable to me. I do think those decks need some evolution at this point for yes. them to stick in the format. And maybe they're just not supposed to be Simic. Maybe they're supposed to be Bant, quite frankly. I've seen yeah. the Bant decks do a very solid job against Golos, be it Caleb winning fandom last week using Bant, or Jess Stefan finding a lot of success in the MPL with a Bant list that is, you know, still the same Nissa into Hydroid Crisis core, but it's also got some Teferi backup along the way. I think that's pretty important versus these decks. Yeah, I, the, the card I really like is Deputy of Detention, which... sure. I didn't necessarily want to play Bant for that card because there were a lot of Wicked Wolves, but if Simic is not really a huge part of the metagame, there aren't a lot of Wolves, or even people are playing Questing Beast instead of the Wolf. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Deputy is a fine card to start playing again. Oh, good point. But yeah, I mean, at that point, it's like you can even not deal with Route or Golos and stop their Field of the Deads. You can just assemble a reasonable enough battlefield position and then just Deputy away all their zombies and get in for lethal that way. Right. You're doing the old scapeshift stuff where it's deputy to fairy, rebuy deputy, never let them assemble that zombie core. Yep, exactly. So if you're listening to this, you are maybe interested in playing Golos, but at the very least, you're interested in trying to beat it. And the mirrors are definitely going to be a thing. And if you watched SCG Philly last weekend, they, they looked like kind of a nightmare. Boards get bogged down, a lot of players making a lot of zombies, not a whole lot of ways for each player to uh, interact with the other in ways that are relevant. And you might see more and more of this stuff creeping up in main decks and everything, uh, agent or treachery, stuff like that. But you're going to need a plan for the mirror. And I was actually happy with our mirror plan. And Nick Prince was my teammate who was playing the Golo side of things and was at some point like lamenting the fact that he might have to play a bunch of Golos mirrors. And I was just like, look, dude, both the decks are going to do their thing. You can't really stop them. And if, if your opponent isn't disrupting you, it, it just means that you're going to have access to like eight mana and all the colors and all of these things. And at that point it's, it's basically deterministic. Like if you have the right tools for the job and you have ways to actually, you know, shut them down from doing their thing and actually have a plan for dealing them lethal damage and stuff like that. Like it is deterministic because they can't do anything to stop you. And if you have a great mirror plan, I give, I think it gives you a huge edge to the point where you can play some Golos hate deck, but if you have a good plan for the mirror, your, your matchup percent is, is actually going to be higher. I agree with you. And I think not having a Trump is indefensible. You just absolutely have to have some setup that you're using for the mirror. And just Agent of Treachery is not enough. I, I see it Agreed. I see it as three plans, basically. I think there's there's three plans you can use. The first one, Agent of Treachery 
plus deputy of detention. You cannot rely on just agent of treachery. It it gets outscaled. I know that's crazy that your seven drop that steals the key card in the matchup is going to get outscaled, but it's true. At some point, that's just not going to matter unless you snowball really, really hard and the games just don't always play out in that fashion. So it's, you need it's some the same, backup. It's the same as anyone else attacking your field of the deads, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like they trophy you, they casualties you, you just bounce right back. You find some other way to win either with Hydroid Crisis or now a lot of the mirrors are playing Kenrith too. And they, they can just do that. They could just like small ball you like, yeah, you have three fields to their one, but maybe, you know, you spent a turn playing agents. They get to play like ramp spell Kenrith haste and hit you. And then you're on the back foot suddenly. Well, you have now stolen my thunder efficiently because that is Trump two that I was going to talk about. Kenrith, the return King, People suggest you may have to play it in conjunction with Beanstalk Giant. I don't necessarily see that as true. I think it gets much better if you have a Beanstalk Giant or two in your deck. But I I think it's good enough on its own to function as a trump in the mirror, be it through Golos rebuys or just setting up hasty kills out of nowhere. The third trump in the mirror is Fae of Wishes. And I, I think this was... Well, I would say Agent of Treachery was the first real one to show up. People played just Agent of Treachery and saw it as enough. The next one to show up was Faye of Wishes plus Jace, Wielder of Mysteries. And this was something Brad Nelson talked about. And I, I totally believe that Brad used that to smush the mirror for a week on Arena. That makes perfect sense to me. I think, though, as soon as he wrote his article detailing it, that plan was basically dead. Because as soon as you can account for that plan, as soon as you know that's what your opponent is trying to do, and if you have something like, say, uh, Kenrith or the Agent of Treachery plus Deputy of Tension setup, you will not let the game get to that point. So I think Fae of Wishes is still viable as a plan against the Mirror. I just don't think relying on Jace alone is enough, though. Yeah, it doesn't do anything when everyone else has plans to kill you. You know, like, when both players would have zombies and they'd just be staring at each other, then sure, you could do this Fae of Wishes for Jace thing. But now that people have Kenrith, they're starting to, to main deck more hate cards and stuff like that. Like, you just can't do that. The games don't actually end up with both players staring at each other. Right. And my approach, what I tried to do this week and what you hated so, so much, that's okay. We can differ on whether we think this plan is viable. Uh, I set up Fae of Wishes with kind of two packages now, one to control Field the Dead in large numbers. I mean, four spells that function as land destruction, two Agent of Treacheries that could steal the land in post-board games, but also having an additional trump in Tectonic Rift, which doubles as a land destruction spell and non-flying creatures can't block this turn. So your hordes of zombies would be staring at each other. You just go grab Tectonic Rift and win on the spot. And I found some success with that plan. Now, which of these trumps is the best? I actually don't know. And I think it depends a lot on what other parts of the metagame you're having to account for. If Deputy of Detention is just a good card in the meta, and it matters a bunch for cleaning up questing beasts or any other problematic permanents that you may be facing, then I like just going with Deputy and Agent. That makes perfect sense to me. If the format's hyper inbred and all you really care about is how do I get as much advantage in the mirror as possible, I think something like the Fae of Wishes setup might be even more promising. Kenrith is kind of my lowest on the totem pole right now. I think if it turns out that small ball aggression ends up finding a way in against the Golos deck, something just like a, a 
basic mono red list. Then I like Kenrith a little bit more because that life gain ability really scales super hard. Like it yeah. gets out of control very Big quickly. Big body too. Yeah, 5-5 five, five for 5 mana is very good against those decks as well, for sure. So that's where I'm inclined to lean towards Kenrith. So I guess I'd rank it like Deputy Detention plus Agent of Treachery as number one, Faye as number two, and then the Kenrith plan number three right now, which is weird because it was the Kenrith plan that really shined this past weekend in Philly. Not enough people had Deputy. That's probably true. That's probably true. I do think that Kenrith, uh, especially with Beanstalk Giant, is very good. Me too. But... It's obviously a little bit slower to set up. That requires the game to keep going on for a very long time. And agent is so I'm I'm very pro agent and deputy. In case you did mm-hmm. not know, uh, and agent is the the first step where it's like you know you ramp, they ramp, they play a thing or present a field, you take it, maybe get like a little far ahead. If you get to play Teferi, bounce your agent, redo it, you get very far ahead. You can just snowball the game that way. But realistically, what happens is like, you know, you play an agent and then they play something else big and you're just like at parity again. So agent is this thing that can potentially take over a game, but mostly it just keeps you like a a little bit up on them. And then that's when the deputies come in where it's like you're you're at parity and then you get to play deputy, get rid of their zombies, get in like a big attack and then you're just like threatening lethal for the rest of the game. And you have things like field of the dead, plus like a fabled passage just sitting there ready to, to make zombies at their end of turn after they sweep you or something. And you can either chip them down that way, or it's just like two turns in a row. Their plan is just make a bunch of zombies to stabilize and you just deputy deputy them twice. Yeah. This all sounds good to me. And we, we battled a lot about these plans Battle isn't quite fair because I do believe in your plan. I was more looking for something else, another wrinkle you could add to the mix if you weren't looking for Deputy's main deck. But this seems like the starting point right now. And it, we saw the same thing in the last format with Scapeshift Mirrors, where eventually Deputy Detention became the key card in those decks. People played one at first, or maybe none at first is the the correct breakdown. Then you saw one start to creep in. And then the first Fandom Legends I won, there was a bunch of people who showed up with three Deputy Detentions in the main deck. And that was what really pushed the mirror into a, a new paradigm where you had to account for Deputy a lot more than you were accounting for the other cards. So in a world where you're not super scared of Veil of Summer and you don't have to worry about your Deputy, deputy routinely getting blown out, I really, really like Deputy, and maybe now this is just the time to do the Teferi talk. Yeah, if you're let's do if it. you're playing if you're playing Oko instead of Teferi, you're making a mistake. I don't know any other way to say it. Like, and a huge percentage of it is the efficiency of people's plans against you in post sideboard games. If it wasn't for Teferi in this deck, post sideboard games would be a nightmare, and there would be so many viable things you could do. You could use Veil of Summer to counter key effects like Deputy of Attention, like Agent of Treachery. You could use Disdainful Stroke to just counter things. You know, they're big payoff spells. They'd be completely invalidated. The squeeze, though, is that if you board in, you know, six, seven counter spells, you're going to get wrecked in a game where they just have access to Teferi and you're unable to pressure it. And that happens a lot. There's a lot of games where I play almost the entire game with Teferi on the battlefield. So moving towards Oko, I think it's, I mean, look, Oko is an incredible card. Everyone knows that it completely warps the format just by its presence. But just being an incredible card doesn't mean it's the right card for a particular deck. And I think abandoning Teferi wholesale leads you vulnerable to so, so many plans from your opponent. If I see my opponent play an Oko 
in game one, I will punish them so hard in post-board games. My sideboarding is completely different in that instance, and I'm very sure I am favored where they don't have access to Teferi. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically feel the same way, and I'm kind of looking to capitalize on that to some degree because these these are my plans, right? Like, I, I do like Disdainful Stroke, but to sort of cover myself against Teferi, I mixed Disdainful Stroke with Mystical Dispute. Mm-hmm. And obviously dispute goes dead kind of quickly unless you get to tag like an early ramp spell or whatever. So it's sort of dangerous, but I don't know. I mean, like deputy also can kind of cover you against Teferi a little bit too. And you can agent their Teferi, which is obviously very mm-hmm. nice. And then, you know, you just get to pick up your own agent and deal with their Teferi. So like you, you do have ways around it. I don't, I don't think that it like definitely KOs you, but certainly if you're like keeping a hand that relies on disdainful stroke to stop their route or Golos and they just lead with Teferi, then it's like, oh, well, this, this plan went to hell, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important to have that pressure point to present to your opponents. Otherwise you become exploitable. Yeah, exactly. But for games where they don't have Teferi or you're able to deal with it, disdainful stroke is so good. It really is. I mean, it sh- it should be the answer. And people are very mad about this Golos deck. I-, I think we should probably just be mad about Teferi. That's that's the card that has really messed everything up. And without that, you can you could just go hard. Like if the card didn't exist, there's so many viable things you could do against a deck like Golos. And they're just you get punished too hard where you aren't able to control Teferi to go all in on them. Yeah, I mean. Rossum won the tournament with Oko instead of Teferi. A lot of the players were cutting Teferis or shaving them or, mm-hmm. you know, splitting them with Okos or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, I think that since this was the first major tournament and how many Teferis were even in these decks in the top eight? Like seven of them were Golos. Zach Allen didn't have any because he was Sultai. There just weren't a lot of them. I think that's going to continue. And I think that you can potentially just exploit the fact that, you know, people aren't playing a lot of that card. It's bold. I'll say that. I mean, relying on your opponent's mistakes is is scary to me sometimes. Well, what else do people have to go off of, right? Okay, so first place, Rossum's list, no Teferi. Second place, Jeremy's list, no Teferi. Uh, Edgar played three. Zach Allen had zero. Fifth place, Dan Staub had three. Sixth place, Evan Appleton split Teferi and Oko, had two of each. Matt Ness in seventh. God bless him with Simic Midrange. And then, yeah, Jarvis in eighth also split to Fairy Oko. So not a single person had four. Yeah. I mean, the card's trending down right now. I, I can't dispute that. But I'll also mention, too, your plans, Agent Deputy, they're helped a lot by Teferi. Like, those cards both get dramatically better when you have Teferi in your deck. Hey, I like Teferi. <laughs> I know. I know. You're I, with me. I'm, I'm I, preaching to the choir right now. I might shave one. But me, too. I, I occasionally play three. But that's about it. You know, I'm not yeah. getting rid of them wholesale. That just seems ridiculous to me. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. Since we're doing the numbers thing now, any other numbers you have strong opinions about where you disagree with what the crowd is doing presently? Because I know I have two I'm pretty passionate about. Basically, just the amount of ETB tap lands that people are willing to play. I don't really get people playing like five guild gates. And I don't really understand why you would want five. Uh, you basically never search for like, Selesnia Guildgate. Okay. And then mostly true. Rossum's list doesn't even have Plaza of Harmony. And then also has Tranquil Cove, Thornwood Falls. Just like a bunch of ETB Taplands and, and a Blossoming Sands. 
So you'd want to go into the fewer tap lands, go into Plaza of Harmony for your life gain. I've been impressed with Plaza of Harmony. I'm surprised how many people have gotten away from it. Yeah, I I don't... I mean, if you're playing, like, the gates to go with Route and to turn on Golos, it seems like playing one Plaza is such a low opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So I don't really get that. Uh, the three Once Upon a Time stuff I don't really get, especially when you're playing, like, 18 creatures and all your creatures are dope. Yeah, there's, there's my point of outrage. It's like, have you read Once Upon a Time? Do you realize how broken this card is in its free mode? And then its cost mode is also awesome in this deck. Like, that's a completely acceptable spell for this deck. You have no qualms about paying full retail for Once Upon a Time. This is a slam dunk for of to me, and I'm not sure how people are talking themselves out of the fourth copy. And I'm sure a lot of it is like, well, I sideboard this card out a lot, so maybe it's not that good. But that ignores the fact that like game ones are linear, game twos are more reactive. And when you want the best linear version of your deck, there's no question to me that it's supposed to have four once upon a time. Also, the first one is just so good. Yeah, incredibly good. It fixes so many things. Like the fact that it finds Arboreal Grazer on turn one to allow you to start ramping immediately. The fact that you can keep hands without a green source pretty reliably. Like I mostly feel safe doing that if I have once upon a time in my hand. So you're able to fix your mana, which is, I wouldn't say it's dodgy, but it's weird. It's at least a little off-putting. Once upon a time, 100% fixes that issue for you. And then like your sweepers are also creatures and once upon a time can find those too. Do you know how many times I've been like dead on board with once upon a time in hand and just been like, Oh, I have to find realm cloak giant. And I go five cards deep. And of course it's there. Like it's always there. Once upon a time just bails you out over and over again. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree completely. And the reason you cited it out a lot is in some matchups, you just end up bringing in a bunch of non-creature things, right? Like you're bringing in more right. removal or counter spells, veil of summer, stuff like that. And uh, siding out Grazer typically because the, the games are slowing down. You don't have to be as linear. And right. Once Upon a Time just doesn't have enough hits and is is actually slow. You know, once you are in the realm where you need to cast like Glass Casket on turn two and uh, Teferi or Deputy on three, stuff like that. Like you don't have a lot of time to actually just, you know, spin your wheels. So that's why that card gets sided out. Not because it's bad. No, exactly right. And then the other card, which I am very big on playing four copies of, is Hydroid Crisis. When I am casting a Hydroid Crisis, I would say like 95% of the time, I'm extremely hopeful I find another Hydroid Crisis because just chaining through them is often the best thing you can do. The flying body pressures all the problem cards we're talking about, Ashiok, opposing Teferis. You're very happy to have some way to break that battlefield stall, which often happens. And it's also like a good plan in the mirror as well. Like sometimes you just win through crisis damage and that's good enough. So having four copies means your first copy will often transition to the second copy. And once that snowball starts rolling, you basically never run out of gas again for the rest of the game. And it also bridges you from your mid game to late game. Like crisis for two is fine in this deck. If you don't have another four mana play, you're very happy to make that in most instances. It forces some kind of reaction from your opponent while just cantripping and being a body on the battlefield. So four Krasis also seems like a pretty clear inclusion to me. Well, I'm fine with cutting a Krasis if it's for something that is also a mana sink that allows you to not run out of gas. So if you wanted to play a Kenrith or, or something similar in that slot, I would be completely fine with that. But for the most part, I agree with you. Like, this deck can certainly just run out of gas, right? Like you just draw a bunch oh, of yeah. like 
grazers and ramp. And if you don't have field, then you're, you're not really accomplishing a whole lot. And you really do want things to do on every single turn. So I don't know. Crisis is, is one of the better payoffs for sure. And if, I mean, if you're doing things like fires, like, okay, sure. You know, you, you right. don't, you don't necessarily need crisis at that point. If you were trying to go like all in on, Risen Reef and finding Risen Reef and, and Yarek and stuff like that, then okay, maybe you don't need four races, right? Like you're you're gonna have plenty of gas in the tank. Yeah, this is talking more default bant builds. Yeah, I, I think it's completely defensible elsewhere. Default bants, I mean, if you want to cut a Krasis and play a Kenrith or two, I would be fine with that, but do not lower the amount of actual big cards and mana sinks that are in your deck. So I talked about this in my article. I, I think that is why most people who played three Crisis got there because they had a Kenrith and they saw that as filling the spot. I, I don't think it's actually at all equivalent. I think, again, Kenrith is supposed to function as a trump and running it out on turn five and thinking it's going to provide you value via its card drawing is a pretty flawed approach. And I would actually say the card drawing ability might be the least often activated on the entire card. Like it's very rare that you're sinking that much mana into the card because the return isn't all that great, quite frankly. So I would prefer you view those slots differently and you continue perceiving Kenrith as a trump card and see Hydroid Crisis's function as something different. Like that's your mana sink. Kenrith is supposed to like one shot your opponent out of nowhere and you only run it out early in the game in absolute desperate situations. Yeah, fair. I mean, it, it depends on what your overall game plan is for sure. Yeah, and all of this is contextual based on the other cards in the deck, absolutely. Yeah, of course. I mean, Edgar's list has four Krasis, one Kenrith. So I do think that that's like a totally fine way to go. I mean, he's lower on Grazer because he also has Beanstalk Giant to ramp, has three to ferry. But other than that, the, the numbers look good for his main deck. This is a good time to talk about Beanstalk Giant numbers, I guess. That's a card you and I have both been lower on in our lists. Why don't you talk a bit about your opinion of Beanstalk Giant? Complete 180 for me. Okay, so you're you're in now. Yeah, uh, just playing games and having Once Upon a Time, and it's like, please, dear God, let me hit Arboreal Grazer, and then there are games when, you know, you don't miss or you're in that situation, but, like, you don't even draw your fifth land or whatever because it, it doesn't actually ramp you, you know? It's like you... It, or it does ramp you, but, like, you, you are limited to the amount of actual lands that you have, right? Mm-hmm. And I want a card that I can once upon a time into that does actually just net me a land that also ramps me. And Beanstalk Giant is great for that. It also combos with Kenrith to give you this big trampling finisher, which I think is very, very good. And this is going to sound like blasphemy. Are you ready for this? Ready. I love the fact that Beanstalk Giant can happen on turn three and ramp you to Golos on four when... You're, you're just so hard up for that sort of effect, right? Like the games where you play Circuitous Route on turn four is basically your first spell. If your opponent is presenting any sort of aggression, you're almost certainly going to lose, right? Right. The next thing I'm going to do is explore versions with four giant and no routes. That is wild. I know. I, I read your article this morning and you gave it a 10 out of 10, uncuttable. And I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Wow, I have I have never even contemplated playing fewer than four Securitas routes for the way it solves your Golos mana, for the fact that it's the only card that ramps you, 
by two lands. It it just seems indispensable for me. I mean, it's play when Field of the Dead is on the battlefield. Your zombie armies out of nowhere. Nothing can replicate that. And I also am much higher on Beanstalk Giant than I previously was. I still don't like the just huge numbers of copies of Beanstalk Giant alongside not dramatically increased numbers of basic lands. Yeah. I, I cannot shake that fear because the first tournament I ever played with Bant Golos, that Fandom Legends tournament, I ran out of basics like three times. I had no Beanstalk Giants and only Fabled Passage, and it kept happening to me. So I don't understand how people who are playing three Fabled Passage, three Beanstalk Giants are <laughs> routinely finding lands with these cards. And maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe when you reach that point, you say, who cares? It doesn't matter if I hit this land or not, and I'm being overly dramatic about it. But it is a concern for me. I do think three mana ramp, it's not good. Like it's it's not good on its face. It's not something we've ever been happy paying for before. And I get that all changes when you staple the creature onto the back end. But unless you're playing Kenrith, I think that creature is mostly irrelevant. Agreed. So the two necessi- necessitate each other. My plan right now is to play Beanstalk Giant in smaller numbers. I'm comfortable with one copy. I'm thinking about a second copy. That sounds good to me. The three copy list, I haven't really seen anyone go four copies, so nothing to really talk about there. So we're talking about a difference of one slot, but that really matters. And it influences a lot of deck building decisions and what your end games look like. I would prefer to be able to play just one copy of Beanstalk Giant, but I understand the games where you don't ramp across those first three turns can be problematic. And maybe that means you need to mulligan more, quite frankly. And this deck does mulligan very, very well. Securitous Route, I think if you lost that card, you'd also lose some of your mulligan efficiency. So I'm a little bit worried about that with your plan as well. I'm I'm working on ways to fix that. I think that if you play four Grazer, four Beanstalk Giant... And obviously for once upon a time, you mm-hmm. if you're not playing route, you probably have to play more land, right? Like you probably just have yeah. to go go back to playing 30 land despite having once upon a time. Right. You have to have enough untapped green sources for Grazer on one. But once you cut route, you get to get rid of the guild gates and you just play hella basics. You just get to play like, you know, eight to 10 basics if you want. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sold on this. So, I mean, I think no, you're I'm, going I'm, to I'm, find... I'm, I'm talking about playing like Swamp and Mountain. Right. But I also think you're going to find spots where you have two to three forests on the battlefield. Like I know your newest list had three forests and I'm not crazy about that. I really don't like crossing the threshold of two of any particular land in your deck because I think that's when the games where you double up one of your early land drops feel so much different from the games where you can just go seven different lands and then your field of the dead. Yeah. So it definitely can matter. Absolutely. I'm, I'm more concerned about being functional in the early game though, and just being able to like actually cast my ghost spiral on turn two and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, Because if you are doing those things, like doubling up on lands doesn't really affect you that much. Okay. That's an interesting piece of theory. I look forward to seeing what your list looks like. Yeah. But like four grazer, four beanstalk, 30 land, four once upon a time, no routes. And you can just go like grazer, beanstalk, turn three golos. Hmm. Yeah, this is interesting. I'll have to see where you go with it. I guess going back to the default builds, do you have any opinion on which gates you're supposed to be using in your mana base? I've seen a f- basically there's two different approaches, right? I think people have just not really thought about this this much. And I don't understand why. Like I racked my brain over this last season when building these Golo decks, and the majority of the time you cast Recruitus Route, you get the off-color Guild Gates, yeah? Yes. So you get Red Source, Black Source. 
Yes. If you're casting circuitous route and you're getting red source, black source, what colors do you also want to find along with that? White and blue. Weird. Why the hell are people playing Golgari Guildgate? Additional green source in the early game. Right. But it just like, you know, say you have Rome Cloak Giant and Agent of Treachery or whatever, and you're casting Circuitous Route. It's like, well, I want to get my black for this Golgari Guildgate, but I don't need my fourth green source. Sure. Like, why would you not play Demir Boros or uh, Is It Orzov? You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think I was playing Is It Orzov early on and also had Golgari. So maybe that was in in place of like the Selesnia Guildgate a lot of people played. I would have to look at my original list, but I will also tell you, I didn't think that much about it. Surprise. Yeah. I I just went ahead and registered what I saw previously. So here's the thing, right? You want want Simic, I think, just because it's a good dual land. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are certainly times when you cast Circuitous Route and you've drawn some of the off-color guild gates. So you're like, oh, I want additional green source or additional of my secondary and tertiary colors, right? And I think in those situations, you get the off-color one that you don't have, and then you either get Simic to get two of your main color, or you get Azorius to get your secondary and tertiary. I don't think you ever, ever, ever search for Celestia Guildgate or Golgari Guildgate and like actually want them. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. I, I think if you're getting them, it means you've already dealt with your needs and any Guildgate will do and it doesn't matter. Right. And people are playing five Guildgates for the most part. Yeah. And I, do, I really don't understand that because you can cut one of them. You absolutely can cut one of them. And then play like uh, another basic and you know i've i've third forest in this spot uh there are some people like edgar who just has the basic swamp to go with his sideboard trophies and kenry yeah, swamp's and stuff been like fine that. for me i'm pretty happy with swamp yeah i don't mind swamp and like you do kind of want the ability to uh double up on golos at some point mm-hmm. so running like a random temple of malady and the plaza of harmony allows you to do that stuff like that uh, so I get playing like random sort of off color lands and for when you play Golos, but don't draw circuitous route, it, it's kind of nice to have like those random off color mana sources, but that's also like assuming that these random off color mana sources don't screw you in the early game by making it so you can't cast grow spiral or Teferi or whatever your kind of like secondary tertiary things are. Sure. It's interesting. You mentioned double Golos, which is something that used to come up all the time for me in the old Golos decks. And like, I actually altered the initial mana base I had because I found myself often wanting to do it. I don't think I've ever double Golos with this list in all the games I've played with it, which is weird, but I'm sure there's like some deck building reason why that just doesn't come up all that often. No, I literally haven't either. But last season, Kenji seemed like very sold on it. And I was last season too. Yeah it still never came up for me. Like hmm. it's, it's just like such this weird corner case, right? Where it's like, you have Golos, you have 14 mana, you're activating Golos. And it's like, Oh, I really wish I could spin the wheel again. And it's like, what are, what are the odds of you actually getting there? You know, it's like, you would have to just like randomly draw some off color sources and then cast a route or maybe cast two routes. And you would need to activate Golos twice. Like it's just such like a small scenario that I just don't even want to mess with it. I'd rather just get like additional colored sources for my main colors in my deck. 
In those decks, I often found myself in scenarios where it was Nexus of Fate or Bust. Now, obviously, that is not a consideration any longer, and that's probably the reason why I haven't found myself doing many double Golos activations. Yeah, now you just have more win conditions, right? You're like, oh, cast right. Beanstalk Giant, Kenrith, activate, whatever, or like Fae of Wishes, do a bunch of nonsense. Yep. Agent of Treachery, bounce it, replay it, you know? Sure. Like, you have so much more to do with your mana now than before, uh, especially with the adventure creatures, so... I don't know. I think it's kind of nonsense. I would be fine with just playing like the bare minimum and just going about it that way. But yeah, seriously, examine your mana base. Look at all the lands that you have that ETB tapped. You can afford to do things like, yeah, Edgar has one hollowed fountain in his deck and he has the stupid gain life land. Why? Mm. Why? Just play the second fountain, please. Maximizing those different names for Golos. Or excuse me, for <laughs> Field of the Dead. Yeah, sure, but you miss very rarely. And when you do miss, it's not even necessarily game-breaking. I will tell you a lot of games I lose are when my first three lands ETB tapped. That's yeah. when I lose. True. Very true. So what's more important? Well, I think that is one of the things that will get shaken out as time goes on. That's one of the points of optimization that still has to be done. This stuff does take time. It takes time for the hive mind to figure this out and get to the right conclusion. And certainly we're still in the process with this deck, which is scary, right? As good as this deck has proven itself to be, to think that it may not even be optimized yet, scary times. Uh, mine's been optimized for like two weeks. Oh, great. You, now, already, you already cracked it. Now I'm about to re-break it with my no circuitous rat version. Let's see it. But yeah, if, if people want uh, additional thoughts on the mirror specifically, there was an awesome Reddit post uh, posted by uh, Medi Kuizma. I'm definitely butchering their last name, but Gold Level Pro, definitely a, a very good writer, uh, got second in the mocks last weekend, and second was only because he already had a slot, so he just conceded the finals. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he played Bankolos, smashed everyone, and really goes in depth about the different mirror plans and uh, kind of like the pros and cons of each and provides like an updated deck list and everything. So, I mean, the Mox is arguably the biggest tournament that has taken place in this format so far. And do just smash the entire tournament. So I, I think you should, you know, do yourself a favor and listen to him, even if he still has Castle Vantress in his deck. I thought the article was great, even if there were points I disagreed with in the deck list. It, it was a very useful article. 100% recommend it. Yeah. I, there there might be things we disagree with, but at the very least, obviously, he's thinking about it a lot and also took the time out of his day to just post this awesome write-up on Reddit. So much appreciated. But yeah, what else we got? We have uh, some, some how to beat it stuff, which we sort of covered earlier i mean from your experience playing this deck like what are the things that have been beating you or like what have you not wanted to play against if i say nothing is is that something something has been beating you not really i mean i i I won fandom legends without losing the the caster cup then in the next fandom legends i went 5-0 in swiss i lost to Jeskai fires planeswalkers in the quarterfinals. I think I played poorly. I think Ali's draws were very strong. And I think he played very well. And I lost. And really, as far as like ladder play, I mostly experiment on ladder. Like I'm pretty confident this deck is good and I think about it a lot, but I haven't been just out there grinding the ladder with Golos. I've been playing more on the other side. So I haven't 
lost all that many times with Golos. I mean, I wish I, I had something more insightful to say, but like, it's, I've just won an incredible amount. I think the deck is absurd. Well, what about from watching the Open? From watching the Open, I saw Golos win a whole bunch and really not get punished all that often. Like the 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 two decks that felt like they were really close were Simic and Mono Black, but ultimately they were just falling a little bit short, especially Simic. Like I watched Matt Nass play the matchup so many times and he played so well and had very clear plans and something would just doom him every time, like a good top deck from the Golos opponent or you know, some mana hurdles in the mid game, not allowing him to double spell on a certain spot and he would just fall. And I don't know what his record was on the day. You know, maybe it was better than I, I think it was. And I just always happened to catch him at the wrong time, but it just felt like the Simic de- decks were coming up slightly behind. And I don't, I don't know that I have like an authoritative answer for you at this point. I believe the gruel players who say they think they have a positive matchup. And I believe a lot of that is playing against suboptimal lists. I think, I mean, how, how do you feel about playing Gruul with your deputy of detention agent of treachery list? I'm actually fine with it, especially. So like, that's what I thought there, there's this slot in the sideboard that was like glass casket, devout decree. And now it's like aether gust. And mm-hmm. w- once you actually have interaction that matters against them, I don't, I don't really think it's a big deal. Because they're just trying to kill you with like a big thing, basically, and Gust is yep. just the the end all be all. You know, I just agree. completely if, undoes their plan. If you account for them, I don't think it's a problematic matchup. I think when no one was even contemplating Gruel, I understand how you could get through the cards they were playing and really punish them. So I, I'm not doubting anyone who's saying they're, they've posted a very good record against Bant Golos over the past few days with Gruel. I just think there's moves for Bant Golos to make. They're going to move they're going to make those moves and the win percentage is going to go down pretty dramatically. So I just don't have an answer for you right now, Jerry. I know that's frustrating to our listeners. They want us to have solved this problem. I have some points that I think are interesting, some things I want to explore, but if I had the answer, I'd just go out and farm ladder and I'd post my number one mythic ranking right now, but don't have it yet. I didn't quite get the mythic last night, but I did go from D four to high D one and I lost one match to Mono Red. And I, I actually split matches against Mono Red. I went one one total. Yeah. Like your bad matchups are forty five percenters at worst, it feels like. So there's got to be something that's presenting a 60, 65% win rate against Golos. And even once that is found, it's, there's a good chance Golos will just alter itself in some other way and found, find a way to be strong against that deck as well. So circle back to Matt Nass's deck. His sideboard is three Lovestruck Beast, four Shifting yeah. Ceratops, three Aethergust, three Veil of Summer, two Mystical Dispute. He basically has no sideboard cards against Golos. Right. Why? I don't know. I don't know. That was something that became very evident as I explored his list throughout the day. I I would love to check in with Matt if he just didn't think the deck would be that highly represented or he thought his matchup was that favorable in like default configurations. I'm really not sure. I I don't have an answer for you. I mean, he's playing Questing Beast, right? So like clearly there's some amount of consideration, consideration, right? Yeah. But then to just sideboard a bunch of nonsense, like Ceratops, who is Ceratops good against? I have no answer for you. I mean, you prepared for this tournament. You played this tournament. What percentage of the field did you expect Golos to be? Percent of the field, I don't know. Percent among the top players? 90? I mean, like right. people people who were paying attention and who were in the know, and this is like SCG is like Amulet Town, right? 
So I just thought that basically anyone who was good, anyone who would like, you know, top eight and open in their life would probably be playing this deck. I think that was pretty, pretty fair assessment. Also, you, you mentioned Amulet. Let's just give a little, little round of applause for Amulet putting up nice finish this weekend. People were very, very impressed with the new Amulet list. And as someone who wasted a lot of money foiling out Amulet and thought maybe I would never get to play it again, I just have to say thank you so, so much for doing that work. It won the open and the classic. Yeah, pretty good. Look at look at Dilks with his disdainful strokes in the sideboard. That Coming card prepared. Just, that card just popping up everywhere. Love yeah. it. Yeah, this deck is weird. Dilks's lists are always weird, and they're usually right. Yeah. And I I mean seriously, I I know he puts in the work, puts in the effort, and I am usually focused on other like I can't just grind. Uh, 50 amulet games in a week. I have too many other things vying for my attention. So usually I just sleeve up his list and I'll play it a bit. If there's points where I disagree, they're usually very small and we don't differ all that much. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that at this point. He gets to be my, my amulet Sherpa. I've given him that title. I got a question. Why is everyone playing so many forests still? Isn't, isn't blood moon like dead? Blood Moon is mostly dead. I, I wouldn't expect too much of it to show up. Not that it really matters. More, do you that, just want more Shocklands? Is that what you're looking for here? I mean, he's only got two Gemstone Mines, you know, just stuff like that. Okay. I, I am positive if you ask him, he's got a reason. So Garenbrig, I guess. Garenbrig is part of it, yeah. Got to have Forest for that. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's fine. I mean, if you have an amulet, obviously it doesn't matter, but... Uh, you can't necessarily account for that every single time. But yeah, I mean, his, his deck looks clean. It looks good. Yeah, and also have to maximize for Field of the Dead in this deck as well. And I, I do think like that uh, is coming sure. into the equation. I mean, you certainly see the forest, snow-covered forest flit, split going on. Yeah. And Field of the Dead is a big part of this deck's plan now. Like it, it's it's a key inclusion. There's a lot of games they are playing with Field of the Dead setups. Yeah, it just completely bricks off any control deck. Yep. So 100%. Yeah, okay. Why why would I question the master? What is wrong with me? What was I thinking? Right. Just let it go. I will let it go. All right, what else? What else we got? I don't know. I mean, like we could talk a little bit about Golos's positioning versus aggro. I just think it's strong <laughs> playing like a creature based deck. Like all this adventure stuff, and I understand that Aaron won the classic with Green White Adventures and Aaron's an incredible player, and especially when it comes to aggressive decks. So this result does not surprise me at all. But I also just don't buy these adventure decks in the least. I feel like they get so smushed under the heel of Golos. I, I've never lost to one of these adventures decks. I see how theoretically they could beat me sometimes, but I just haven't lost to them. And I don't know what to make of the dramatically reduced number of Bant Golos players in this classic the cynic in me wants to say well all the bank goalless players won a bunch and therefore they were still playing the team tournament yeah i don't know if that's actually true but yeah this is a a top eight loaded with four adventures or excuse me five adventures decks and i just don't get anything from those decks i don't see them as all that promising some people just want to beat down and i can respect that i respect it too I just wish they'd tell me why. <laughs> That's what I'm really looking for here. Like, why am I playing these decks? And I don't know. I, no one has like popped off with, oh, I have a 70% win rate against Golos. But yeah, I, I would have to 
to play this kind of deck into this metagame, what else are you preying on? Not nothing. I don't know. You, right. just, you get to beat down. You have a, a card draw engine. You get to play with sweet cards. Like I guarantee that there are a lot of people that just end up making mistakes against your deck because they don't know like all the tricks that mm-hmm. exist and like the different ways for you to get through for lethal and stuff like that. Okay. You know, so there's, there's some merit there, but yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. Okay. I just thought maybe it was me and maybe I was missing a, a part of the equation, but yeah, I not sold on adventures right now. Yeah, me either. But I, like, I recognize that it is potentially powerful, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the first time I played this green white deck against like the Simic deck, I was blown away. I was pretty sure I was going to register it for fandom last week, actually, when I first played it. And then as I played more against Golos, I was like, well, I don't know about all this. Yeah, this might not be the best idea. Right. Uh, Well, the last thing that I will mention about Golos, since we are doing a deep dive, is in addition to having an actual plan for the mirror, because you don't want to get into those game states where both players have 20 zombies and, and no one can do anything. Uh, have a plan to actually close games, but also the games might still get to that point and you need to be able to play fast. Not my strong suit, Jerry. I understand. We still have to do that shuffling video, Brian. We will do it at some point. We will do a mechanics video. Yeah, we got to fix your mechanics, man. Yeah, this is good advice. I thankfully don't think I have a live tournament that I will have to play this deck in. I am safe within the confines of arena where I can somehow manage my rope and not time out. But I don't know what I would do in person. This is like the nightmare deck for me, 100%. Well, we have a PTQ, not this weekend, but next weekend, right? Oh, we do. Is that standard? It is standard. Okay. We might have to figure this out sooner rather than later. Yeah. uh, So maybe uh, I think I get home from SF on Tuesday and then we can hang on like Thursday, maybe go to Mox or something. Maybe do some some training camp, something like that. Mm, that doesn't sound bad. Play a little modern while we're there. Yeah. Okay. I'm down. Yeah, I got uh, uh, Grix's Death Shadow list that I'd like to try. So Nice. And I have this shiny amulet deck that I've never actually played with. Ooh. And it's probably about time. Although I am going to have to get three more full art foil once upon a time before then. So yeah, because you open I can't one. afford to do anything. You yeah, opened, I, I opened one saying. in my collector's booster and got priced into three more copies. Yeah, you're the luckiest, sort of, I guess. Kind of, sort of, probably not. But yeah, th- things things that I will say about just playing quickly is even if you just have to practice your mechanics, like playing lands, tapping, untapping, being able to quickly recognize like how many tokens you're going to make, stuff like that, and also being able to shortcut those things where if you're doing multiple game actions, like say... You play a land and make a token, and then you cast Circuitous Route, you make two tokens. You play Growth Spiral, you make two tokens by putting in another Field of the Dead or something. Just be like... Bad sequencing there, Jerry. Clean that up. I Well, I understand. I understand. <laughs> well, yeah, learn how to play well first, obviously. Right. You don't have to necessarily, like, put in all the tokens at the same time, right? Or, you know, like, oh, go in my deck box and grab a token, and then I'll cast this route, and then I'll grab a token... Uh, just like have the tokens out. You can say things like, all right, I'm going to make a token and now I'm going to route and make two tokens. And then I'm going to play my land and make a token and then I'll pass the turn. And then while you're passing the turn, you can like go put the four tokens onto the battlefield or whatever. And I see a lot, like, it seems so small, right? It's just, it's seconds, 
But think about any match that has gone to time and you're like, oh, if I only had like 30 more seconds. Well, there's definitely a lot of ways to shave 30 seconds off the game actions that you're taking. Yeah, we've all we've all played those games 100 percent. Well, not, I, not I think me. This is good advice. Come on. Never, never <laughs> gone to time ever. I have. I have. But it, right. it has been very, very infrequent over the last 10 or 15 years. Like ever since I realized like, hey, this this is the thing. This is a thing that matters. There is a timer and I need to be able to, you know, just like clean up my play, maybe think a little faster, do these things like shortcut, right? Because like I played Cobblade and I would like crack a fetch, say I'm getting a planes, put a squadron hawk on the battlefield, say get three more squadron hawks, your turn. And then I would start searching my deck instead of like actually going through all of those motions and then passing the turn. It saves a ton of time. No, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And I, yeah, I I think people can avoid draws if they just work on their mechanics a little bit. And I know it's not as fun as like figuring out your last main deck slot or whatever, but while you are playtesting in real life, uh, you know, just keep an eye on that stuff. Well, I look forward to our boot camp for mechanics. Oh, dude, I'm going to I'm going to have you into just a well-oiled machine. Is there going to be drills? Can we make a training montage of me like with a headband on, like just shuffling really rapidly and making piles of cards and grabbing tokens from my deck box? No piles and your tokens are not hiding in your deck box. They're they're like on top of your deck box or somewhere. Look look how many flaws are already present in my game that you're working out somewhere that is easily accessible, my friend. Okay. see, this is the type of stuff I need to learn. All right. I guess that does it for our deep dive. Uh, Any any questions, comments, uh, things that we did not miss? I mean, definitely hit us up on Twitter, in the YouTube comments, uh, in our Discord, whatever. We, we'd we be happy to answer them and even just discuss Golos further because I, I like this deck. I like talking about it. I love that you almost defaulted to like the like, share, and subscribe monologue there. You're a real YouTuber now. Yeah, it's close. It's close. <laughs> we've all done – we've both done enough – YouTube videos where it's kind of getting programmed into our brain that we have to remind everyone to like, share, and subscribe. And by the way, y'all have liked, shared, and subscribed, and I appreciate it. We are up to, let's see, I have it in front of me right now, 4,200 subscribers after just starting this YouTube channel really only a couple weeks ago, and some of our videos getting incredible numbers of views. You're all you're all awesome. There's no other way to say it. You all support us so dramatically and the YouTube channel is off to a great start. And I've gotten some tremendous feedback from folks who are enjoying the deck techs we're doing over there. Of course, there's the gameplay videos and people seem really into it right now. So if you haven't checked it out, youtube.com slash arena deck lists. Also, what do y'all want? What would be beneficial to you? What kind of content do you want to see? We exist to make content for you and try and help you provide value to you. So if you have any ideas, things that you would like to see more of, things that you think would make uh, a good format for YouTube or, you know, even the podcast, whatever, any sort of feedback, definitely let us know. We we don't get enough of it. So uh, that will be my call to action for this week. Yeah, 100 percent. So every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for their burning questions. We select one of them, answer it on the cast, and the winner is awarded one of the world's finest arena deckless pins. And the question this week that we have selected comes from Firemind12, and they asked, 
How do you keep your skills sharp in multiple formats? Do you make it a point to play so many matches of each format each month, or do you have a method for re-entering a format after not playing it for a prolonged period of time? Brian? So I don't have any purposeful way of like freshening up on a format. The thing is, I stay engaged with every format at all points. So I am always looking at deck lists. I am always covering modern tournaments. I am always interested in what's going on in Legacy. I play Standard quite often on Arena. I rarely play Magic Online at this point, almost never. But I think at this point, I've established such foundational knowledge of both modern and Legacy that when the time comes to play, I'm just good. Like I, I, I get the play patterns. I know what I have to be focused on. I know what's important in the format. And are there missteps and wrinkles along the way? Sure, 100%. And if I was wrinkles? playing... A, yeah. Wrinkles? wrinkles? Little wrinkles along the way, causing me to sacrifice my creatures. If I had to play a Legacy or Modern Pro Tour, then maybe at that point I'm like, okay, I need a week of Modern Boot Camp to just get fresh on the format again. But something like an SCG Open or like an MCQ, I just rely on a huge, huge backlog of knowledge to carry me through and anticipate that will be enough. And is that optimal? No, I'm not trying to say this is the correct way to do things, but just given uh, content creation priorities and given what I enjoy doing, I am mostly going to focus my games on standard, on arena. You know, if Modern was on Arena, I'd probably have a very different take on it. But it, it just is what it is, really. I, I'm I'm not going to have a, any kind of regimen to keep myself fresh and modern. I'm just going to rely on the fact that I've played it a ton ever since its inception. And a lot of that stuff carries over on a week-to-week basis. And with Legacy, the same play patterns have been coming up for years and years. And again, there's rankles along the way. But you you know the heart of Legacy if you've been playing it a long time. And so we see like... Rug Delver showing up again and being very good. Well, I played Rug Delver when I had Nimble Mongoose in it. And while there's changes, a lot of the core tenants are exactly the same. The core play patterns, when to fetch, what you're trying to accomplish from your deck, a lot of that stuff holds up. So I make equivalencies, and those equivalencies are usually enough to carry me to being a solid player. It's like riding a bike, at least as far as Legacy is concerned. No, I think so. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to, I guess, what your goals are. I mean, if you have this month or period of months where you have to play standard and modern and legacy, it's like, well, what are you, what are you trying to get out of all of this? Because I I don't think that all of these formats necessarily are a a path to the pro tour, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you are not trying to focus on qualifying for things and being the actual best or improving or whatever, then you don't necessarily need to focus on all of these different formats. I think most people are probably just like involved in two formats at a time, you know, maybe standard or modern or whatever they have going on locally, whatever, you know, maybe there's like a a weirdo format for uh, magic online, PTQ, stuff like that. And I, I think that past the, the first two formats, you probably just don't need to try that much, you know, because it's ultimately probably a tournament that doesn't matter all that much. So, yeah, you're talking about like, oh, I'll show up to like a random SCG open to play Legacy. And I basically did that last weekend. Right. And it just so happened that I got to play a Legacy PTQ on Magic Online and I played through a few leagues and everything. So 
I got to catch myself up on the format, but I'm always paying attention to legacy. Like I want to see how, you know, new cards interact with the format and how the format is shifting. So I'll, I'll look at deck lists and I'll read articles and watch streams and stuff like that. And that keeps me up to date on the format. And even for things like popper and vintage, like I still look at the deck list and I still have like a, a rudimentary understanding of like what the metagame is, what the format's about, the decks that are winning and stuff like that. And I don't think that being prepared necessarily has to be predicated on you physically playing games. And like you mentioned, Brian, if you were playing for a big tournament, a tournament that mattered, like a pro tour that was modern or legacy or something like, yeah, then maybe that requires a little bit more hands on time and actually playing matches and figuring things out. But if you're just talking about like playing leagues and local tournaments, it's like, whatever, just, you know, keep up to date with the format consume content based on those things, but you don't necessarily need to be entrenched and like, you know, have the most up up to date list and, and things like that. Uh, but for, for standard and modern, even if it's like, all right, I had to focus on standard for two months and now I have to jump into modern, like what's going on. It's like, well, some of your time is probably served pretty well just by trying to keep up with modern in the meantime, not necessarily being like, all right, I have a week to test for this tournament, but I haven't looked at anything that's happened in the last two months, you know, just like, Pay attention to those things. Keep them in the back of your mind. Look at the Magic Online decklist because I think that those are a pretty good indicator. Peruse the SCG decklist whenever those happen and just try and keep up to date that way. This all calls to the fallacy that just the act of playing a game of Magic is at all meaningful. And it's not. Like sitting down to play a game of Magic does not necessarily grant you anything whatsoever. And that stays true to 20 games of Magic. There's no clear-cut benefit that you will derive every single time by playing those 20 games. It, it, unless like you're just learning how to play Magic. Then, of course, every single game you play is going to show you something new. But when you think about someone who has played for 25 years like I have, there's some core things which are basically foundational at this point. And then there's things I feel like I need to learn for a given format. And I don't necessarily have to play games to be able to learn those things. I've played two separate Pro Tours where I'd never played a game with my deck before I sat down for round one. Again, is that optimal? No, probably not. I'm sure you gain something by playing uh, enough games with a focus on learning. But in instances where that's just not something you can fit into your schedule, you learn other ways and you think in other ways and you, with enough experiential base, you can just apply lessons from other areas without having to actually draw the cards, tap the mana and do the things yourself. Right. And so last week was SG Philly team tournament. I was the legacy seat. And like I said, I had played online. I had not played live legacy, but you can also just keep in mind the things that might come up that might be different. So for example, I played this deck that was very light on win conditions and I knew the time was going to be a factor. So I made a conscious effort to play as quickly as I could uh, in order to make sure that I could finish my match. And for the most part, that worked out well. I came close to going to time, but you know when, when that's happening, it's generally in matches that I'm winning. So not really a big deal. But one thing that did come up that I did not prepare for was the fact that it's a team tournament and I need to be focused on my match and like trying to play quickly. So 
my my teammate Allie in in the middle seat would like ask me a question and I'd just be like, crap, I, I can't really afford to answer this. Like I need my time, you know? And if I had been more practiced in like team tournaments and had played more of them, I might realize like, oh, I should not play this deck that eats up 45 minutes of the round time if I want to help my teammates. So things were not perfect. I thought that I had accounted for a lot of things, but that was a wrinkle, a wrinkle that I had not anticipated. So it's not going to be 100%, obviously. And we we certainly, I, I don't know if we lost as a direct result of it, but I definitely gave Allie some bad advice in, I think, two separate occasions, which I feel really bad about. But yeah, that's that's just part of it. Like you're you're gonna learn from those things too, and then it's like, okay, next team tournament, I'm gonna be ready. I'm just gonna play Delver instead or whatever. Love it. Love picking up the Delvers. Yeah, I haven't I haven't flipped those things in a while. Probably since like blue red Delver, right? And that's going back a few months now. GP Seattle. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess I did play Delver in that tournament. I forgot about that. I was thinking. I think I'm gonna de- I'm gonna delve this weekend at at Mox. I believe I was thinking about maybe playing some lands for a while, but I didn't want to spend the two thousand dollars on cards I needed. So, well, I I got the Tabernacle, man. You just need the drop of honey. Yeah, you, you could just not play the drop. The drop's probably not even good. I I literally know nothing about the deck. So again, I'm going to trust someone who knows a bunch about the deck. I would just play Casey Lancaster's list, and since Casey has. This is a really good example, actually. I'm glad we brought this up. Since Casey has probably thousands of hours in with lands at this point, I'm not going to try and insert my own opinions on the scenario when I would just be picking up a few hours of experience. I'm going to just trust someone. And I think that's part of being prepared for tournaments like this, too. If I'm in a format that I'm not directly involved with, I know who to trust. I told you, Dilks is my amulet Sherpa. I will trust Dilks if I have to play amulet. And those kind of shortcuts can be worth a lot when you establish a trustworthy relationship with someone. Yeah, that's that's legit. I'm I'm completely fine with that. But I I do think that if you're at a point where it's like, oh, I kind of want to play lands, but I don't want to spend seven hundred dollars on a drop of honey, like, dude, that that's fine. Just don't <laughs> just skip it. Just don't play it. No, you're exactly right. I'm sure I could get away with it, but I, I would also be happy to play Rug as well. So I, I think Rug is probably the default best deck in the format. I think Lance targets a little harder, but quite frankly, for a local meta, you do want something that's a little bit more uh, linear and able to account for anything. And I think Lance is more specifically preying on things like Delver. So, yeah, I got some some Rug technology for you. So definitely hit me up for that tournament. Ship. And when do you play the the Legacy League thing? You should plug that. That too. is next week. We're going to do that the middle of next week. So they're actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. There may not be another episode before I actually have to play my matches. I think that's going to happen on a Wednesday. So we'll probably have recorded, but not released. So that will be on my stream, twitch.tv slash Brian G MTG. And you're going to get to see me play some Legacy hopefully well uh, in the Legacy Premier League. I'm really excited about that. If you haven't seen the like promo material for the Legacy Premier League, it's absurdly good. Have you seen it, Jerry? Uh, I saw the like 8-bit characters. Right. So the entire trailer is done in that aesthetic. You would love it. You should really go check it out. It's so well done. Um, and I'm really excited to be playing in that league. So make sure you check that out next Wednesday. All right. Fair enough. All right. I think that's going to do it. Hope everyone enjoyed this deep dive. Hope that everyone learned a lot. Again, hit us up with feedback, things that you want to see. Watch Brian on the Legacy League. Go check out our YouTube channel. All that fun stuff. That's game.
Good luck. <laughs>